I was trying to figure out this whole thing about unit pricing because I remember this comment that I think it was a worker at the supermarket made um, asking us, oh, you're not going to do a story about unit pricing, are you? We're like, no, 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 no. Um, I think the idea was that there was a certain point in the past where uh, when you went to the supermarket, every product, a, a can of beans, a box of rice roni, what have you, everything had a little price tag on it, right? And they had those price guns, you know, going ka-chunk, 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 right? So a lot of people had to go through the supermarket when they brought out, when they restocked the shelves, they had to set the price gun for that price, 99 cents or $1.05 or whatever it was back then, and go ka-chunk, ka-chunk, and then adhere these little stickers to every product, right? And I think what happened, because this was around 1987-ish, I think, around 87, I think it was 87, it may have been 86, it was around that time period, apparently a lot of the supermarkets moved to what they called unit pricing, which was... Um, they would display a price for the particular product on the shelf, like underneath it, which is very common these days. In fact, I saw, what was the store that had it? Kohl's. They have uh, their unit pricing, uh, a little L, little L, uh, networked LED, L liquid crystal displays, those little gray displays. So they could change it from a central place. They can, they can adjust the prices like in real time. Most of the time, like at the supermarket, you will see an actual little price underneath the item, like you'll see a bunch of, you know, bottles of olive oil and underneath it, it, it'll sort of say, you know, San Domingo olive oil and it was, you know, like nine nine sixty nine, you know, whatever, whatever it is, right? And that we find that very normal. But back in the day, I think people were very taken aback by that. They were used to just grabbing something and then looking at it to see what the price was, not unit pricing. So my inference or what I'm assuming is that when the supermarket shifted over, because you might imagine... It's slightly cheaper. You don't, you, you, you know, you, the amount of time, the amount of people you needed to stock the shelves to actually physically carry the stuff over to the shelves, but then also having to put a little price, ka-chunk, 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 put that little price gun, it, you know, right? The materials, the little sticker, the rolls of stickers you had to buy, training the people how to do it, maybe mistakes people might make, you know, maybe they had the, maybe they had the little gun set wrong and then they had to, unpeel all the stickers and then redo all of them right by introducing unit prices where you just you develop some sort of system of a shelf that has an edge underneath it where you can sort of slip it i think a lot of them had a kind of a curving metal edge underneath the actual surface of the shelf where you could sort of slide in and sort of um, uh, a plastic or i guess it would have to be a paper label you sort of slide it in, but it se- they seem like they might be plastic as well. You know, sort of slide it in, it sort of snaps in. You know what I mean? But it seemed like they had to retrofit their whole supermarket to have that. Otherwise, you could just have some sort of... I guess you could have magnets, but then, I don't know, people might get wise to it and start shifting them around. Because I know people did actually in the past, if, if the price, if, if the little price stickers were not as... Uh, you know, a lot of stickers, if you try to peel them off, they all like, you know, they start leaving residue and stuff, and it's, it's a big mess. But I think people did switch price tags on items to try to get something cheaper. That was a big gag back in the day, I think. I never did that. I would never do something like that, but I think people were doing something like that. So then it, it, it was left up to the price, you know, the, the, the people at the checkout counter who actually were, this is before, obviously, UPC codes were, were, the, were, were the, the big thing. I'm not sure when UPC codes came in. It must have been a little bit after that, you know, where you started scanning everything at the checkout because they had those barcodes. Um, but before that, every, pr- 
product would have a price tag on it, and the checkout person had to type it into the cash register. So if a can of beans was usually like like fifty nine cents, and if 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 you had something on there thirteen cents, I think you know like that they would notice there was something wrong. But if it was like fifty two cents, if you found something else that was fifty two cents, you swapped it to fifty nine cents, they might not notice it. Or if they were new. If you were doing this kind of scam, you would you would try to find like a trainee or someone that was new that wasn't so familiar with the prices to do this whole scam. Meanwhile, they could probably see you doing the scam if there was, you know, the employees seeing you t- taking stickers off of things. That's a whole thing. But anyway, there must have been some news reports around that time that were talking about um, how they felt super it was like a like an investigative journalism about unit pricing where they came to the supermarket these supermarkets don't have prices on anything anymore there's they've unit pricing and so once you pick something up i guess maybe at that time people would fill up their shopping cart and then be like oh well i can't afford all this let me see what i can get rid of and then you back before that you could see the prices so you, okay i'm gonna chuck this it's too much money but now that you don't have any prices you don't even know anymore you know, just just as technology marches on, there's these little circumstances that come up. So anyway, this I believe was I believe it was a shop right in Morristown. It was me and Mad Mike. We were making our video series Weird University. I think it was it was maybe in '86, fall '86 maybe. I think so. Or. I know that when I made the complete Weird University earlier this year, I figured out all the timing and stuff, I think, as much as I could. What is this noise? Why, why, every time I want to sit on my porch and record, there's this endless... What are they even doing over it? I can't see what they're doing. You hear this racket? What the hell are they doing? Like, literally, are they drilling? Are they vacuuming? What are they doing? Is it those air... Leaf-blowing... I don't even... I can't see what's going on. But it's been going on for a while. That's all I can tell you. But anyway, we, we, made, we were making this video series called Weird University as an adjunct to our Anything But Monday radio show. And it was a series of comedy skits. And this was Shopping with Franco. Um, Mad Mike had his character, uh, Franco Wolfini, and my character was Iggy Salzo. As if we didn't have enough going on, we created all different personas for ourselves. We created this whole other comedy series, this video thing. We we had so much going on. It was insane. Anyway, so we needed to find a supermarket. So I think that we made contact with the manager of the supermarket. I'm not sure if we called them or we went to the supermarket. If we were calling them, we would have just uh, had to look in the phone book. Everyone would have had a phone book. And in the yellow pages in the supermarkets, you would see ShopRite in Morristown, New Jersey, and you dial the number. And I think back then they may have, a lot of times it was just the seven digits, not even the area code back in the day because there were so few area codes. Like New Jersey was all 201, I think, at that point. There was no, all of New Jersey was 201, I believe, still at that point. Then they split it off into 973 and 201, but I'm not sure when that split happened. So I, I don't know, Mike or I called the supermarket and we're like, this guy, they're never gonna, they're never gonna let us film our, 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 our comedy show in there. But somehow, I don't know, I forget who called or we went there in person. I don't remember at all, but I just remember. Somehow we made contact with the manager, and they were very um, friendly, and they're like, "Oh wow, that sounds really cool. We we know Dream University. It's right down the street from us. You're gonna make a video here? Yeah, great. 
do whatever you want. You have access to the supermarket. I'll let everyone know. It was like one of those things. You couldn't even imagine these days. Like, imagine today trying to do that. It would be like, oh, my God. They'd go through all this corporate red tape. The guy's like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Come on over. So we showed up, I, with, I, me with my, my VHS camcorder and Mad Mike, and we're just, like, talking to the people there. We're like, hey, we talked to the manager, and he said we can film here. And, you know, we, we were talking to everyone, the security guy and everyone. And um, so that's when, you know, you know, I think we were one of the checkout people or someone there was like, oh, you're not going to do a story on unit pricing, are you? I, that always stuck with me. It's not on video anywhere. It's just she made this, like, offhanded comment. It may have been that, that woman that was at the checkout lane. I got to avoid that one. She may have said it. You're not doing a story on unit pricing, are you? I'm like, no, 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 no. And I think I kind of knew what they were talking about back then. But yeah, thinking about that, it's just like a whole different world back then in the mid-80s, you know? T- using the telephone for everything. And no internet, no cell phones, obviously. It's so hard to think back. It was, we, it was a pretty advanced age, technologi- technology-wise, but we just, we, you know, it, we just didn't have what we have today, what we, we take for granted today. <laughs> Unit pricing, yeah. I don't know why that came up. That really came to mind. It was... Uh, big controversy back in the day I, sh- I could probably try to look up on newspapers.com or whatever if that, but we don't need to do that the unit pricing controversy oh but I just realized it had to be around the time they introduced the barcode readers yes it had to be yeah yeah because otherwise how would it alright now it's see I know I, I was missing something there right without the barcode reader how the hell would the checkout person know how much everything cost in fact, I'm sure in the footage we, we could see if they were scanning things with the barcode. That had to be around the time they, they shifted over. So people may have expected, okay, well, you have these barcodes. Remember, and remember back in the day, people thought the barcode was like the mark of the beast, 666, the mark of the beast from the Bible. I think some people still think that. You know, that the barcode was evil, remember that whole thing? And it was a symbol of, like, blatant consumerism and a shallow society putting barcodes on everything. That was so that was an awesome thing. I love thinking back on the things that bugged people in the past. It's so funny. <laughs> like barcodes were the big bugaboo back then. <laughs> and, of course, talking about uh, my Tapeland video series, um, I just released The Complete Polarized Worlds. I had took about a six-month break from Tapeland, and, you know, it, it's happened in the past a couple times. Tapeland is my series where I go back and I find audio and now also video from the past that I feel is worthy of release and, uh, and put it out there. And I feel, it's a, to me, it's a very vital project, but it's become sort of counterintuitively. I sort of feel like it's this massive project that I'm... It seems like the more I do, the more I have left over. But, I mean, realistically, I think if I, if I plow through another, like... 40 or 50 t- cassette tapes, I think I'll be pr- pretty much scraping the bottom of the barrel at that point. And with videos, I think I have maybe about a, maybe a dozen videos left, and then, then I'll be pretty much scraping the bottom of the barrel, which I'm looking forward to. I, d- I, I would love to get to the point where I've kind of released all of the tapes I have that I feel are worthwhile. I just have so much, especially on the audio side, uh, so much stuff. Um, I have my cassettes, and then other people have sent me their cassettes, and then I have a few other people sent me cassettes, and then I have reel-to-reel stuff from the past. I need to get a real reel-to-reel player. Still have a few micro cassettes I have to go through, and um, 
you know, beyond that, I do sort of feel like the scope of the project does go to text and the old mini comics I did, things like that, as part of the project. So, but again, it's just archival material, so it's not. I'm not creating new stuff, but it's still a massive project. So anyway, I did release over the weekend the complete polarized worlds. This is amazing and. I think the fact that I got sick over the past couple of weeks, because I, I think I spent two weeks, once I started the project, that two weeks, a little over two weeks ago, I spent like two solid weeks working on, on this. And this is the complete footage that we shot making that Doctor Who fan film in uh, 1985. The summer of 1985, I was 17 years old, and, um, right, 17, yeah, yeah, 17 years old. And me and a group of friends, we all teenagers, we uh, we made this Doctor Who fan film. We were huge Doctor Who fans, and um, we uh, it was uh, this big project. This guy Jim Glynn, who I've tried, I think I found his email. I tried emailing him. I think it was about last December. I never heard back from him. I don't. I have no idea what's going on with him. But he wrote the script, and he was pretty much the the creative mind behind the thing. And I was like the director. My father's friend lent us a video camera, and uh, we got all our, fr- our friends together to, to be in the movie. And, my God, this behind-the-scenes footage is such a treasure. Now, it's the audio of the behind-the-scenes and then all of the filming of all the scenes with all the bloopers and everything. The audio of that I released um, first, I think, in the Bluff Cosmere era about 20 years ago um, as Video Kids 85, just a very short clip. Then uh, between 2007 and 2009, I released Video Kids 85 Part 1, Part 2, and Part 3. That was most of that, right? Most of that. I think I edited out some silences and some uh, copyrighted music stuff. But this one now, we had two VHS tapes, and one of them was Lynn's. We Lynn, who played uh, Lynn Schlexer, who played uh, Arquilla, the psychic girl. She gave us a, a VHS tape, and they were really valuable back then. A VHS cassette tape was very expensive, and we were kids; we didn't have any money, so we had two VHS tapes. And her tape, I think, had uh, Tarzan, that that Tarzan movie that Ian Holm was in, and what's his name played Tarzan? Like that 80s Tarzan movie was on there, because there's a bit, like you see some clips of that Tarzan movie uh, in between what we filmed, because as we were rewinding and fast-forwarding and stuff. So anyway. um, So anyway, the movie, we finished it, and we showed it to a few people. Then I think... We the way we edited it was we had a VHS tape deck and a beta tape deck and I think we were we we made that the final edited copy on beta and then I made a, a one dupe of it on VHS for that uh, Jim Glynn had and since I lost contact with him I uh, I thought it was lost I thought the movie was lost I knew I had the raw footage but I thought the movie was lost in fact for a long time I thought I would. Uh, if I could find the script, I could probably recreate the movie based on the VHS footage. But as it turns out, I, as I started going through all my my videotapes, I found one. I found one, and it was it seemed to be the right one. And I bought a Betamax last year. It's like what is it? Like three hundred dollars for a, a Betamax from like eight eighty five. It still worked, and I was able to transfer it. The transfer was a bit wonky, and the very beginning was uh, was damaged, I guess, due to oxidation. But the entire movie was uh, preserved. And I released it back then. 
I was kind of hoping that it might gain some popularity because it was a, an American Doctor Who fan film from 1985. But as yet, it has not uh, set the world on fire. I know I could do more to popularize it or whatever, promote it, but I'm not really... That's not really my goal. I don't want to, like... I don't have a lot of time and energy to do something like that. Maybe I was hoping it would naturally, someone would find it, but it doesn't work that way. Anyway, let's not worry about that. Um, so I always un- was intending on, on doing the complete... This The complete series is all the raw footage, which since it's from the 80s, all this stuff is super fascinating, to me at least, to have all this footage. And um, this this complete Polarized Worlds, which I just released, and you can watch it right now. Now, I decided I did not put it on YouTube, only on Internet Archive. But the video's there. The reason I didn't put it on YouTube is because there's just so much copyrighted music and stuff in there. I'm like, listen, I, I don't even want to deal with it. And plus, there was a lot of, uh, you know, like, uh, hormones going on, and especially, uh, you know, the guy who played the doctor and Arquilla were constantly sort of flirting and horseplay and stuff, and it it felt a little bit like, in this day and age of super sensitivity to such things, I didn't want to go anywhere near YouTube or Google with that stuff. I think it's all very innocent, there's nothing wrong with it, but I didn't even want to bother with YouTube on this one. As it turns out, I did not edit out a single thing. I just edited out the static and the blue screen between the scenes that were there. And what you're seeing is the entire contents of the two VHS tapes, which is just shy of eight hours long. Now, meanwhile, I I was sitting and watching it and building this index, writing down every single scene and the time stamp of it. And it was incredibly difficult to do. So emotionally draining because... If you watch it, you'll see, like, I'm actually being kind of a jerk. I'm like, you guys are idiots. What are you doing? Like, calling people idiots, saying, I'm going to kill you if you don't do that. I'm really going to kill you. I was 17 years old, but still, it's so painful to sort of have to face my jerky younger self, you know. But it really is an amazing document of real-life teenagers in 1985 that are, like, very nerdy, like, into Doctor Who, making this movie. And it reminds me a lot of, you know, like this current obsession with Stranger Things and teenagers in the, mid, in the 1980s. Like this is a real document of that. So I think that's super interesting. And uh, I'm always, I'm the one always running the camera more than it had to be run to sort of capture. And I say a few times in the footage, I'm like, oh, I want to capture the behind the scenes footage. I kind of had a sense that this would be good stuff, not just filming the scenes, but filming behind the scenes, like some of the best segments are when we're hanging out waiting to start and uh it's such a vibe plus it's the only i think the only audiovisual footage i have of uh my grandmother evelyn sappenfield like she's in it a, you, you see her a couple times and you hear her a couple times and it's just like the only record i have of her really i know that she was a she used to shoot eight millimeter films herself all silent i believe um but that is somewhere in my father's house and I know that will turn up eventually and that I will have to get digitized and that's going to be another treasure trove that will be out there but uh, that as yet has not been found I remember we watched some of it a long long time like probably back in the 80s when I saw my projector that did 8 and Super 8 and uh, we were watching some of them and my, my mother who passed away last year, very sadly. Um, there was one movie that she was so embarrassed by, 
um, she was sort of uh, lip syncing the song I Enjoy Being a Girl and um, performing and she was so mortified by it so I don't know I hope she didn't throw those tapes out th- those movies out I hope they're still in my father's house somewhere and, and I hope they're still in some shape that they c- I can take them down to Costco or something and have them digitized we shall see. I also need to properly digitize my 8 millimeter movies, though most of them are represented in uh, Galaxy Reel in uh, um, Early Echoes Fusing, another Tapeland video release. And then another movie that, um, with sound, with the soundtrack, I is in here. It's, it's in The Complete Polarized Worlds. It's my nuclear movie, uh, which I... I projected and then filmed with the video ta- the video camera. And I made that for school. In high school, I made the, the nuclear movie about nuclear war. So you can watch that one as well in, in there. And plus there's a lot of these what we call, uh, what I call concept videos where we're sitting around doing these kind of little art videos. And I think I was very inspired by, I think there was a show on PBS called Alive from Off Center where they would show short like art films um, and you can find a live from off center on YouTube and stuff. But there was one William Wegman and his and his Weimar honors. He, he made all these movies, and then that guy Bill, whatever his name is, he was also in the TV show uh, Legion. He did a thing about being on TV. He was sort of like a clown or a mime. But I was really inspired by them. So we had a bunch of them, like Rat Music, Cat Him, um, The Chair. And uh, so those you can watch those as well in the complete polarized world. There's so much great stuff in there. And in fact, one of my video, one of my upcoming Tapeland videos, probably, I don't know when it's going to come out because my next one is going to be uh, the classic Tronic of the movie. I filmed in the uh, video game store and the video game meetings, uh, collectors meetings in 2002. That's going to be my next one coming up. But um as a sequel to Early Echoes Fusing, I'm going to be making Curly Gecko's Musing because uh, this guy Frank Panucci, who's an art, who was an artist on our, on our Anything But Monday comic books, I sent him a copy, and he always likes to sort of change the names of things. So he's like, I really enjoyed watching Curly Gecko's Musing, referring to Early Echoes Fusing, but I figured that would be the sequel, which would be a bunch of shorts that I have found on the various tapes. Um, that I want to put together as sort of a, a new a sequel to Early Echoes Fusing, and uh, I think I think it's going to be great. So, and I think that rap music, and then in, in parentheses the chair, will be that one segment, about fifteen minute segment, um, where, where we're trying to be all weird and artistic. And there's there's also a segment where I I filmed every uh, issue every co- issue of Alpha Flight, the comic book I had in sequence. Um, with a uh, one of the Alan Parsons Project uh, instrumentals behind it, I think Hypergamma Spaces. <laughs> so nerdy and so cool, and uh, you know my Ginger the cat, my cat Ginger from back then is in it a lot. Yeah, there's just a massive amount of stuff. So uh, I'd like to hear how people enjoy it, <laughs> and then sort of the things that happened, like. Uh, um, Paul Bergen, who played the doctor, forgot his robe in one scene, so we did these makeup scenes where the robe is thrown into the alternate universe separately. And towards the end, there was a a, a point where we like accidentally erased like the whole a whole day of filming. We had to redo it. 
there's so much going on. Um, and then also, the, l- the footage that was lost from the beginning of the edited version is in there. It starts off with Glenora, like Gl- Jim Glenn, Frank Nora, Glenora Productions Presents is there at the very end. And then um, we had this montage taped off TV of, of all the doctors uh, up until... So I think that uh, Paul Bergen was the seventh doctor because Sylvester McCoy had not yet come on the scene as the real seventh doctor. And then there's an opening segment where um, Jim thank, does thanks people and gives a little introduction. That's all in this footage. So everything is preserved. And it's real interesting because the VCR we had, you could actually overdub audio over video. It was just a, Back then, consumer electronics had all these additional features that they don't have anymore. So we did a lot of audio overdubbing to add music or sound effects and stuff. So it was really, we had ver- a very primitive setup. But I think what we wound up creating was actually quite good. But anyway, check out the complete Polarized World. The audio of it is has been released, and then the video is on uh, Internet Archive. And it's all there on onsug.com. And I made a new title card with a, uh, I found a VHS camcorder font, not 100% exactly the same as the one the font that we had in the camera for example in the camera that capital o was a complete square the font i found is has rounded edges but listen let's not let's not split hairs okay the title card i made was uh, in the basement there and our basement had all the fake wood paneling right we had an old pong machine as one of the pieces of equipment you can see it there on the title card and there's a a, a program that goes these sound effects with this cool uh, black and white pattern was a program I wrote on my TI-99-4A computer and and saved on a cassette tape. You could save data on cassettes back then. So it's a whole thing, and I finally got it out. And in fact, as as I started mentioning earlier, because I had that, my eye had that sty, my eye was really irritated, and then I got a cold, so I, w- I, I, was, I didn't go anywhere the past couple of weekends, so I was able to actually get through and get this done. If I, didn't, if I wasn't sick, I don't think I would have gotten this done already. Um, so anyway, it's just, to me, this is like a huge accomplishment that I finally got this done. And here's the beginning. Let's see if I can get this to play. My brother as Cyril, the henchman. I'm recording. <laughs> and it's cool because the very beginning of the video says Doctor Who and the, uh, the font on the camera there and uh, it's the beginning here and then it's really cool because there's, there's a scene in my father's office and his, his secretary Lil is there I think, I think sometimes they called her Diamond Lil here it is and at the very end of the tape also it, it says Doctor Who the logo there's Lil I remember Lil this guy Richard, who, who who lent us his video camera, and I think we I think we messed I think we broke I think we messed it up or broke it a little bit, but I think it was okay. He didn't he didn't mind. We're trying to figure out how it works. I was trying to plug it into the TV, and that basement with those wood paneled fake wood paneled walls was was the in thing back in the day. There's something very warm and human about wood-paneled walls that fell out of fashion, but I just think it's beautiful. And the basement is so represented because we, we were down there so much, and then all that, that's where Morglyph's lab is. 
So the basement is almost sort of like another character in, in the whole video. And it's still pretty much exactly the same as it was back then. It's still the same exact walls, everything, as it was back in the 80s. Because cause I've been going there quite a bit since my father's been sick, so I've been helping him out. Um, the same exact basement. I gotta When I go back there, hopefully this weekend, I'll, uh, I'll go to the basement and reminisce. <laughs> wow. Anyway, check out uh, The Complete Polarized Worlds. Hey, it's later on now. It's quite a rainy, crummy day. It's quite foggy earlier, too. A lot of fog banks going on. And I would say it was weird. Like, over the weekend, there was a... F- I had... Just there was a feeling in the air. It felt very strange. It was really hard to put my finger on what it was. <coughs> but, uh... Sorry. <laughs> Started up a new cigar here. A Cohiba Red Dot. Um... The feeling, it just was, it almost felt like the gravity from another timeline or the pressure of another timeline that was very close by to our timeline. And, uh, you know, the idea that uh, there could be timelines where there's a nuclear war or some other thing and that there may, that there exists, this is a theory, of course, there exists some mechanism for the consciousness that is us to skip to a, a nearby timeline that where that particular um, event didn't happen. But that you'd feel the pressure from the other timeline, the gravity, the pressure, uh, however you want to describe it, as, you know, essentially the other you in that timeline and what is experiencing something so different, right? So usually, if you would imagine concurrent timelines the other yous the other copies of you experiences may be kind of similar depending you know on how divergent the timelines are but if there's one where there's like a nuclear war and then you're in the one where there wasn't a nuclear war that day obviously in what would have, would go unnoticed your slight uh, perception of your the other yous in nearby timelines would feel like a great pressure, a great dissonance, right? It could have, it also could have just been the cold med. I've been taking, I, I, I have gone back to taking Alka-Seltzer Plus now and then when I really need it. My nose has been running. I've been coughing. So it could just be cold medicine or uh, a, a nuclear war in another timeline. Please don't apply Occam's razor to that one. But anyway, anyway, yes, yes. It was a strange feeling. And uh, who knows? My suspicions of reality... <laughs> I, I realize I'm, I'm probably uh, overanalyzing these things, but uh, it, ca- it came to mind. It came, it's, it came to mind. And I think it is today when the, the next uh, of the uh, endless stream of prime ministers will be uh, – I don't, I don't know if they're inaugurated or what, what they – they actually – I think they just have to go see, see the king. They have to go to the king's office and talk to the king and then uh, – I guess, uh, what's her name? Uh, Liz Truss has to go to see the king. She's like, hey, king, I quit. And the king has to accept her resignation. I accept your resignation. Bye-bye. And then the next guy, Rishi Sunak, the new prime minister, comes in. Hello, I would like to be prime minister. Yes, you are prime minister now. Congratulations. Goodbye. And he goes and he's prime minister, you know. It's a strange system. He doesn't have to swear on a Bible or anything like in the U.S., 
do you solemnly swear on the bar? Yes. You know, I don't know if they do that there. I don't know. Just go to God. Well, it used to be, yeah, go see the queen. Now you just go see the king. I guess that's one of the cool things about being prime minister. You can go hang out with the king. I mean, obviously, you know, even Liz Truss, who was only in the job for, what, a few weeks, not even two months, uh, at least she can say she hung out with the king a bit. And the queen, right? She met the queen the day before she died, and then she, she has to go to the king to, to uh, resign. She's the only one, well, in a long time, that, that uh, hung out with two, two monarchs. Great. She has has that tale to tell. Remember that time I was prime minister? That was awesome. Remember I met the queen and the king? That was awesome. Yeah. She became the laughingstock of a complete nation, but at least she has that. At least she has that. New prime minister, apparently. I had never heard of Rishi Sunak before, but apparently he's uh, he's twice as wealthy as King Charles. King Charles has something like Three or four hundred million pounds, and Rishi Sunak has about eight hundred million pounds, so he's like twice as rich. It's like, hello, hello, King Charles. I would like to become prime minister. By the way, I'm twice as rich as you. Just want to let you know. I know I'm not a king or anything. Don't worry. Don't think anything of it. You are now prime minister. Goodbye. Yes. What's going on with these people? The hell. This cosplaying country with their kings and queens. Or what do some people call it? LARPing? The LARPing? The nation of LARPers? <laughs> Listen, I know I have a lot of listeners over there. I'm not trying. I'm just saying the king and queen thing is getting kind of old. That's all I'm telling you, okay? That's all I'm trying to say. You're a wonderful country. You're a wonderful, well, obviously a group of countries that are connected. England, Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland. They're all connected as the United Kingdom. What the hell's going on? Oh, it's raining, man. It's raining pretty hard. No, I love those. I love that place. But, you know, the king and queen thing is a little old. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. Rishi Sunak. Wow, the rain's really coming down. It's crazy. Wild. Yeah, I had actually an incident um, with my trash can. Um... I always, you know, I always wondered, like, when it's really uh, heavy rains, a lot of trash cans and trash can lids can, um, you know, because I live on a bit of, I live on a hill, but it's also the street is a bit, you know, it's going down slightly. So if there's a big flow of water, uh, your your possessions can flow downstream. And uh, I was always so surprised, like, when someone's trash can lid, um, was in front of my house. I left it in front of my house for a few days thinking they'd come get it, but they never did. I can never understand that. If you had a, you know, th- these are, you know, you, what do you have to go to Home Depot to buy more of them? If you have a trash can lid, you want it. You knew it was raining. You knew that this this could happen. And why not walk down the street and grab your personal possessions? And eventually I just, I just had to k- kind of, well, it's hard to throw out anything related to trash cans, right? How do you throw away a garbage can? You know, how do you, they would just assume it's a container for garbage. You know what I mean? Like, how do you throw it away? It's, it's a very tough problem. Um, I think eventually I just sort of put the garbage can lid in a, in a plastic bag and put it in with the garbage, tried folding it over or something. But anyway, um, 
Monday morning, you know, put the trash out Sunday night. Monday morning, I look out, my trash can's gone. I'm like, what the hell happened? So I go on my uh, my Ring uh, doorbell video camera, which I love, because you always will know. You can always see what happened in front of your house. So what happened, they, they picked up the trash about 6.20-ish, and uh, I saw them come by, pick up the trash, and they, they put the, the can down. And it was very, it was still dark, you know, it has the night vision, so I could barely see the trash can. And then I was fast-forwarding, and then I saw, hey, it's gone. So around 6.30 and like 30 seconds, I saw the trash can start, flo- like, moving. It's, a, it's just, like, flowing down the street with the water. It's wild. I wouldn't even think that that would happen. It seems too heavy to do that. But I guess if the water raises to a certain level, it provides a little bit of buoyancy. And, just, and the thing does have wheels, so if it's pointed in the right direction, I suppose it could do it. So I'm like, it must have gone somewhere down that way. So when I went outside, I saw it was down not that far. I just couldn't see it from my window uh, by my neighbor's driveway, and I retrieved it. But I'm like, it had like a red handle. I'm like, wait a minute. Was that really red before? See, more timeline uh, paranoia. Was that a red handle before? I thought it was more like gray. I I guess I, it could have been red, I guess. I don't know. Is there, is there anything of this timeline stuff? I don't know. It's all it's all pure speculation at this point. Anyway, back to Doctor Who. Okay. Now I know a lot of you have never seen this show, or if you tried watching the modern version that started in 2005, you might think it's total crap. Which it has been very crappy for a long time now. And you're like, why does anyone like this show? Well, it existed before, from 1965 to about 1987 or eight. Um, in the original run of the show. And uh, that's when I got into it. When they started showing it on public television here in the U.S., I instantly became a huge fan. And there was a phenomenon of American fans because of its, you know, being syndicated onto public television. Um, there's a huge phenomenon in the mid-1980s of American fans of Doctor Who. And the show was so different and so great. And uh, what a fantastic show. You know, if you don't know Doctor Who, I mean, it's about this alien who looks like a human, but he's a time lord. He has two hearts, and uh, he's from this planet Gallifrey, where they they're the time lords, and they have mastered traveling through time and space using Tardises, a vehicle uh, that's larger on the inside, um, time and relative dimensions in space. Ooh, the rain's getting heavier, and. Uh, It's essentially, it's in it, and it's meant to have a chameleon circuit so that it, when it appears somewhere, it sort of materializes. It's just sort of the entrance to the TARDIS, right, that materializes. In Doctor Who, he went to London in 1960. No, was it? No, it was 63. I'm sorry. It was 63 it started, I think. I think it started, like, the day after Kennedy was assassinated, something like that. Don't quote me on that. Something like that. Um, 63. Yeah. Anyway... Yeah, because the 60th anniversary is coming up. Yeah, that's why. Next year's the 60th anniversary. Okay, that makes sense. 63. Anyway, um, the Doctor is the name of the character. He's never called Doctor Who. His name is just the Doctor. Hello, I'm the Doctor. And uh, so he basically stole a TARDIS and sort of became a renegade Time Lord going on adventures through time and space and always tended to pick up these companions. 
mostly from Earth, but some aliens as well. Occasionally a, a Time Lord or Time Lady, such as Romana 1 and Romana 2. Um, when is Romana coming back, by the way? She's still alive in, in canon, I think. Anyway, let's not worry about that. So anyway, um, so... Right? I stu- So basically, the first Doctor was William Hartnell, and when he... I don't know, when he was no longer available for the role, they built in this idea that the Doctor can regenerate, that Time Lords have this ability. When they die, they just regenerate into sort of a new, a new adult person and continue their adventures. So the second Doctor was Patrick Trout, and the third Doctor was John Pertwee. Fourth Doctor, Tom Baker, on and on. We're now up to the 14th Doctor, who also was the 10th Doctor, but we'll get to that. But as... If you watch the complete polarized worlds, you can tell we were just absolutely in love with this show. And, um, you know, it went off the air in the late 80s and it came back in mid 90s for one episode, a TV movie that didn't really take off. Paul McGann as the doctor. And then in 2005, it came back and it's been back ever since. And the newer show has gone through phases where it's been quite good, or, but more often than not, really poorly written, you know. But always being very respectful to the canon of the show. And paying is uh, what you call like fan service, um, referencing the older doctors and older situations is always sort of enjoyable for old time fans like me. Most recently, the last couple of years, the show was taken over by a showrunner named Chris Chibnall, who certainly was not in any way, shape, or form suited to be the showrunner for Doctor Who, because he completely did not get Doctor Who. It's the worst writing the show has ever had. And you had Jodie Whittaker as the 13th Doctor, who I felt was miscast from the start. I'm all for a female Doctor. That's fine with me. But I think anyone that plays a Doctor really needs to have a certain persona, a certain characteristics that she didn't have. And I, don't think, she, I, th- I think she was at a disadvantage from the very beginning because she is just not naturally Doctor-like. And uh, interestingly, as her tenure wore on, the incredible criticism that was aimed at her and the sort of endlessly being harassed about being a bad doctor, whatever, that sort of made her more angry and world-weary, actually made her a better doctor in her performances, I think. Though, she never really came across. I always thought Olivia Coleman, who was her co-star on Broadchurch, would have been a superb doctor, but she's a bit too successful now to, to I, I suppose to have been available to be the doctor but she was much better in fact Joe Martin who plays the fugitive doctor uh, a black woman um, far better and more doctor like than Jodie Whittaker and Joe Martin showed up on the special uh, the other day on Sunday I, I really love Joe Martin as a doctor um, and the next doctor Shudigatwa is actually going to be the 15th doctor now in 2024 you're getting all this? This is all so complicated. Um, we've only seen like one second of him as the Doctor in a, in a promo that just came out, but he seems to be properly cast as the Doctor. He does have that those Doctor characteristics. You can just tell. And they've been very good with the casting, but she just was not really suited for it. And the writing has been atrocious. So this was the final, the end of her tenure as the Doctor, and the end of Chris Chibnall. Now Russell T. Davies, who, who ran the show starting in 2005 for a number of years, is coming back. 
I don't know if it's good to look backwards. It's better to look forwards. But I guess rather than roll the dice with another showrunner that might ruin it even further, I guess the BBC is going with a known entity. And weirdly, yeah, the 10th Doctor is the 15th Doctor. It's the 14th Doctor. I know if you don't know Doctor Who, this doesn't all make a lot of sense. But anyway, it was weirdly coincidental that the day I released The Complete Polarized World, the Doctor Who fan film I worked on, they they released The Power of the Doctor, the final Doctor Who episode of 2022, and the end of, you know, the 13th Doctor. Same day. It was interesting. So it was like an hour and a half special. I watched it on BBC America you know, on my YouTube TV DVR. They just put so many commercials in. It's unbelievable. It makes it almost unwatchable. But I, but anyway, I just skipped past the commercials on the DVR. So, in this episode, uh, the Doctor is uh, confronted with this uh, situation. The Master is trying to destroy the Doctor once again. The Master is a Time Lord who's the Doctor's longtime enemy. One time school chum, and now mortal enemy, the master. Um, And uh, it's a convoluted plot. Cybermen, Daleks, you know, Russia in 1916, London in 2022, yada, yada. (coughs) And in the end, the doctor regenerates into David Tennant. The tenth doctor, he's back. He's actually also regenerated the third regeneration of the tenth doctor because at one point the doctor regenerated into himself when he was the tenth doctor. Are you, are you following all this? But I thought it was I mean it was watchable, but in the end it felt very empty and very pointless, even though they did include so much fan service for us older fans they brought back two companions Tegan from from the fifth doctor's uh, Peter Davidson's uh, time and I think she actually was she actually there she may have been I'm trying to remember because I started she may have been there f- the tail end of the fourth doctor as well I'm not sure and then also Ace who was uh, Sophie Aldred who was the uh, companion of the seventh doctor I haven't really w- seen a lot of those Sylvester McCoy anyway they uh created a very convoluted story plot element which allowed for the return of the first, fifth, sixth, seventh, and eighth doctors. So, I forget his name, but there's another guy playing the first doctor. He's been playing him for a while. Um, Peter Davidson, the fifth doctor. Colin Baker, the the sixth doctor. Sylvester McCoy, the seventh doctor. And Paul McGann, the eighth doctor. All appeared in the show so they're there in canon it was a kind of a holographic yada yada AI yada yada whatever uh, inter regeneration zone yada yada whatever okay it was cool to see them though you know and <coughs> great to see Tegan and Ace uh, actually in the show I thought they both did a great job I, again I'm much more familiar with Tegan and they both, it was great to see them back on Doctor Who. There were also a few other ones, I think like Joe and a few other ones were there. They had like a support group for former uh, 
you know, uh, companions. Because these people travel time and space with a doctor and are great friends with a doctor, and then they're just dumped, right? Obviously, in the real world, they're making the show. They do it in seasons, and they have contracts for the actors that play the characters. But in the show, these people, the ones that don't die, because a lot of companions have died, the ones that live, they just get abandoned by the doctor. Now they live the rest of their life haunted with these memories of these amazing time and space adventures and always wondering will the doctor show up again to take me on more adventures it's very sad I remember when uh, a few years ago I think it was the Matt Smith era 11th doctor uh, that he, he ran into Sarah Jane Smith again and that was I, I think I actually started tearing up when I saw that I certainly didn't tear up la- the other day but <laughs> no this is very meaningful for people but the writing was just dreadful atrocious horrible um, you know, the master's plot was so intricate, but he was so easily defeated in the end. Like at one point, it was kind of cool. The master like forces the doctor to regenerate into the master, so the master was the doctor. That was kind of cool, I guess. But they said also with Russell T Davies, they called it the reset button. Like all this stuff happens, and then in the last five minutes, this Deus ex machina, it just everything is back to normal. Everything's fine now. It's not really a good way of writing, honestly. So really, I sort of feel like it's the same thing as, you know, like my Star Wars fandom, where I'm so sort of connected to the to this world of Doctor Who, the same as with S- Star Wars. And the media has been so horrible in recent years for both. It's kind of like... Um, I still watch everything Star Wars live action and Doctor Who live action and uh, it's been painful. For me, I'm also a Star Trek fan but not quite as strong because the garbage Star Trek they've been spewing out on that Paramount Plus or whatever the hell they call that network now uh, from Discovery to Picard. Oh my God, some of the worst garbage on television I've ever seen. Worse than Star Wars or Doctor Who. I stopped watching all that crap. Unwatchable. Even though that Enterprise one was... I watched a few episodes. It wasn't quite as bad, but... What was that one called? Too Boldly Go or something? I, I forget exactly what it was called, but... It's the one with the Enterprise, but before... With Pike. Captain Pike. Oh, God. <laughs> Fandom. So yeah, if, I mean, I don't, I don't know how anyone today could get into Doctor Who if if you don't know about it, because you don't even, you can't really go back to the beginning because most of the first few years of the show have all were all erased and destroyed by the BBC. They didn't even have those episodes. I would just start with the fourth Doctor, who's was in a lot of ways the best Doctor, Tom Baker. He wasn't in this one. He was in some other ones recently, and then I guess next year there's going to be. A few episodes with the David Tennant as the 14th Doctor. And then finally in 2024, Shooty Gott was going to take over. Ugh. So that's the long and short of it, the whole Doctor Who thing. Oh, my God. What a mess. What a mess. Anyway, on to more pleasant matters. Uh, and here's another Flea Devil Solitaire update. Flea Devil Solitaire is the solitaire game I've been working on for over 15 years now. And uh, I've been playtesting it. Now, you know, I really thought it was done earlier this year. 
came back to it and uh, came up with a few new rules I really love. The walkie-talkie rule, love it at staying in. And uh, the only problem is, as I'm playtesting it, I'm actually getting better and better at the game. So as the game was, uh, with the baseline rules plus walkie-talkie, like I was just winning way too often. It was just kind of no fun because I was winning too much. So I came up with the whole piggy bank concept, which I liked. But I played a bunch with piggy bank, and again, I was just winning way too much. And winning, you know, like it really wasn't that fun because I, I just always was winning. So then I came up with Piggy Bank v- version 2, which is you only count the pennies into Piggy Bank, not your bankroll. But again, it felt a little overcomplicated and it didn't really add much to the game. And it felt not as so fun. What is it, sunny now? What the hell's going on out here? Uh, so... I realized I had difficulty levels in the game. The zonkers, the the two jokers you get with a deck of cards. If you don't put any of these zonkers, I just call them zonkers in Flea Devil. If you do with no zonkers, it's the easiest. You add one zonker, it gets a little harder. You add two zonkers, it gets even harder. Uh, the zonkers are essentially inert. They're they're there in the in the marketplace but they make everything further apart. They're sort of meant to be these sort of like weird stoner guys who just hang out and never buy anything at the the flea market, right? Zonkers. Um, So I realized as I've gotten better at the game, why not just add more Zonkers? And uh, as you may know, in every deck of cards you buy these days, or almost every deck of cards, there's the 52 standard cards, plus two Jokers, plus two more cards. They usually make each deck 56 cards for some reason. It must be... Um, I think it has to do with the, you know, like, rows and columns. However, they print it. Um, they have 56 cards, right? So usually they're just, like... In some of the higher-end decks, or decks used by card workers or magicians, they... Uh, illusionists. They put, like, gaff cards, or sometimes it's just sort of promo cards for the company. They're just two other random cards. So... I figured, let me try this out. Let me throw those two extra cards in. So now instead of two zonkers, there's four. Now I did also try out the double zonker rule where each zonker would cost an extra dollar to get around. But I found that to be a total drag to keep track of and to think about. I didn't like it. So I don't like double zonkers as far as that. So, But I did double the zonkers in another way. So it's... uh, four zonkers now and I found that like my winning and losing percentage now is much closer to what would be ideal for a solitaire game it's like winnable but you're not you're not going to win like like so far I've I think it's less than half the game that I've actually won and uh, not and you know like removing the piggy bank rule um, it's been like the times I've won I've had two dollars three dollars or four dollars left you know in the bank roll so that does seem a very promising thing. I think if you're really into the game, you might want to just uh, buy two decks and uh, take those two extra cards. Between the two decks, swap the two extra cards with the two Jokers, so now you'll have four real Jokers for your Flea Devil deck. But anyway, I'm still playtesting it, and uh, but it seems really promising. It's just been so frustrating because I've been so close to perfecting this game, but... 
every time I think it's done, I, I find flaws in it in the playtesting. But that's why I'm playtesting. So anyway, there's your Flea Devil update. Hopefully, I can uh, finally truly release it to the world soon, soon, soon. Oh, I had a few more notes on the Doctor Who episode. Sorry. Um, Ace had her jacket with all these patches on it from the 80s. And uh, one of the patches was for Bell Atlantic. I, I didn't realize that. I don't know if that patch was actually in the original show, but that's so awesome. Bell Atlantic. That used to be our phone company around here before Verizon took over. Bell Atlantic patch. And uh, the fifth doctor mentioned Adric. I think because it was a uh, like a hopeless situation because Adric did go on a suicide mission and he was one of the companions that was killed. It was great to hear Adric mentioned even though Matthew Waterhouse... Well, because in, in canon, he's dead. They can't really bring him back. <laughs> so, And he was an alien, too. He wasn't from Earth. Anyway. Anyway. Hey, it's a bit later on now. So you know the comedian Russell Brand? Um, so apparently now he has a whole like YouTube channel and stuff and all sorts of online presence. And I guess he's trying to uh, you know build... He has a show, but he's trying to do it away from... Seemingly any, you know, like big corporations or anything. So he was doing it himself. So uh, I usually get a lot of links to his stuff from uh, Peter Bernard, you know, who's sometimes on the channel. And he's uh, another one of the two. He's one of the only other 209 guys in the world. Um, So I guess he has multiple different channels. One of them is on a site called Locals.com I never heard of. And here's a video of him describing what this is all about. This is just from a, a few weeks ago. It's very confusing. Let's see if you can figure this out. Like, there's all these different websites that he's on and all this different content. It seems kind of interesting. Hey, if you're a fan of my podcast, like Subcutaneous, formerly Under the Skin, or the videos we do on YouTube, but now mostly on Rumble, always first on Rumble, you're already a member of our community. Stay free AF. If you want to go deeper with us and gain access to longer interviews, Q&As, my stand-up special dropping in December, potential attendance to live events, as well as some fantastic interviews with Gabor Mate, Wim Hof, Vandana Shiva, then join our members' community. Stay free AF. We're going to be talking to Donald. We're going to be talking to Bernie. We're going to be talking to Elon. And once those interviews are confirmed, I'll give you the surnames. We've already got Elon confirmed. He's going to be our first big interview. Join us on Stay Free AF because you'll not only get the live stream on Rumble every day, Monday to Friday, you'll also stay in the members zone where you get to talk to me and the guest impersonal every single day. As well as that, every week I will be doing a meditation. I used to do Above the Noise. Now, stay awake. My new weekly meditation on subjects like heartbreak, grief, and ironically, going to sleep. So stay awake will help you sleep occasionally. Let me know in the chat below what you want to see meditations on. So join our community. Our position on this channel is we are anti-big media, anti-big government, anti-corporate corruption and the revolving door between the state and big business. We are pro-individual liberty and community action, that you should have power to run your own life and your own community. You're already an awakening wonder. Now become as free as fuck. Only here with us. Stay free. Okay, you got all that? It's just interesting. I guess there's there's all these, these like, rumble. I've been hearing about rumble lately. I guess it's a video site where 
it's not as easy to get kicked off, I guess. I don't know. I don't really know about a lot of this stuff, but because he's someone that already was famous from, you know, he was made famous by, you know, big corporation media, right, through various specials and movies and things. But now he's using the fame to create his own channel, which I think is pretty cool. I really don't know. I mean, he says where he's coming from. He's he's pro-freedom, anti-big government, everything else. I mean, these days it's so hard to trust anyone at any level. But I just thought it was interesting. He's using this, like, myriad of, like, all these different websites to get people to come on. And I guess he's making some money. Or is he is he rich enough he doesn't really need to make money? I don't know. I guess you could always use more money. But anyway, I'm not going to sign up for anything. But I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> he has meditations. He has all these meditation sessions and... Ay ay ay. Anyway, just for what it's worth, I thought that was interesting. All right, I'm outside again. It's a bit later. So this week's Overnight Escape Central, the topic was characters. And I came up with a a frivol, which is my concept of a creative project which is complete once this once it is described, right? I know it may not sound immediately intuitive but the idea is that someone that has a lot of ideas you know which which I do whether they're good or bad I do have a lot of ideas um, you have ideas for projects or things you could do far more ideas than you could ever implement so the idea of a frivol is something that it simply is the final product is just describing it and then it's done that doesn't mean it could never become something else in the future but it wasn't going to anyway so you know um, <coughs> I think the origin of it was back when uh, Brian Jude, who used to be a personality here on the Onsug, um, was trying to make a movie called The Miracle Man. He did a whole Kickstarter, all sorts of things. This movie's still not made, but um, he actually had a reading, a full cast reading at a, at a church, Unitarian Church in uh, Montclair, New Jersey. I attended. And um, the reading itself, like if you just, I, I was thinking if he had just recorded the audio of this reading, it would be a work in unto itself. It would be like a final product of some sort, but I don't think he ever, I don't know if he recorded it or if he planned to release it or anything, but I'm like, why is this not a thing? Like it's, it's like a complete work as a full cast reading. It's like an audio drama. Uh, like, yeah, like an audio drama of, uh, of, of the movie. And, uh, that just got me thinking to, you know, at what point is an idea, Implemented. How? What point is it done? So I'm like, well, you know, we can def- we can just define what the f- a final product is. So that's why I like frivols because I can talk about them and then cross them off my mental to do list. Though there's some I over the years that I I can't even find them anymore. There was one I did. I'm trying to. Remember, I don't even know what episode it was on. I tried finding it. I couldn't find it. But there was one that was um, about these uh, these kids that created like. They created this like work of art that was a combination um, of it was like music and writing and poetry and all based on but based on real life and I wish I could find that one <laughs> I, I know it's it's on the show somewhere but <coughs> I'll find it eventually um, anyway. As long as I just use the word frivol in the description, I should be able to find it. But I don't think I, I used it in that one. I don't know if I used it in that particular one. Anyway, if that rings a bell to anyone and you can find it, let me know. But 
anyway, uh, the lost frivol, yeah. Uh, anyway, so this frivol, I was I when I did uh, this week's, yeah. So I mentioned the characters uh, central, and uh, so I came up with, with the uh, the frivol of um, the reality jamboree, which would be about using an AI to create this like infinitely long movie, basically where you would invite various like obscure characters from all across every medium and they'd receive an invitation and then a, a doorway or a portal would open and they would uh they would go through and there'd be this huge jamboree this huge celebration where all these characters would meet each other and interact with each other it would all be run by an ai so you could sort of watch these like thousands of different characters like arriving at the jamboree and interacting with each other and the idea was the the AI would be able to just dynamically generate um, in full video or in full 3D you could be in virtual reality and even watching this um, the reality jamboree so listen to the central that's coming out this week about uh, characters um, to check that out I, was, I really uh, enjoyed that one came up with a lot of obscure characters but there's a few more I wanted to add right after I was done I realized there was a few more I, I thought would be a good idea to add um, Syphil and Ollie of course and uh, and Chester from the Syphil and Ollie show and other characters from Syphil and Ollie like maybe Dr. Vernon Merble or, or um, Stealth right the whole cast of Syphil and Ollie would be invited and then I think also Ed the Sock the Canadian sock puppet because Syphil and Ollie are sock puppets Ed the Sock was a, a popular puppet personality in, in Canada. So Ed the Sock, we could invite. I also figured uh, another character from Epcot would be the clown from the, the 3D movie Magic Journeys. <laughs> that would be a really obscure one. That was a 3D movie they showed at the Imagination Pavilion before Captain EO took over. And finally, uh, Christian Slater in Star Trek. Remember... I didn't have any Star Trek uh, characters, but remember Christian Slater was in Star Trek. He did like a cameo. He was like, "Hey, how's it going? I'm a Star Trek. I'm a Star, I'm a Starfleet uh, officer." Remember that? Yes. So that would be a good one. So just a few additions to the reality jamboree. And I came up with another frivol today called the seaweed brunch. This one is is a bit sketchy, but it would uh, the idea would be it would be sort of a. Uh, like a Gen X, like it would take place in like 1994 and there'd be like young adult Gen Xers that are all trying to like achieve their dreams, probably closest to something like a Reality Bites as a movie. But this one character, his, his dream is to create a restaurant that has this, the seaweed called the Seaweed Brunch and it would be a brunch place, but they only served sea, various various seaweed dishes. Like every dish would involve seaweed in some way, the seaweed brunch, and it, and it and it was like sort of just his idea. He would tell everyone about this idea, but he never did anything about it. So it was like a running joke in the movie, like you and your seaweed brunch. You know, you're never going to achieve that if you don't really put your mind to it. <laughs> Great, there's the frivol, the seaweed brunch. I just like the sound of it, the seaweed brunch. I don't even know where that came from. I think because I have several uh, seaweed seasonings in my cabinet right now so kelp and uh nori and all sorts of seaweed products the seaweed brunch <laughs> come on it's a good idea don't you think i do 
Oh, anyway, I did a, I, I did a little digging, and I found a reference to that Bell Atlantic patch on Ace's jacket. This is a, what, some sort of random web page. I don't even know what this is called. This is uh, references to the United States and Doctor Who on broadwcast.org. I, I have no idea what that is. Um, anyway... From the episodes Dragonfire to Survival, the patches on Ace's bomber jacket illustrate several American icons. On the right sleeve is a patch for the Enterprise landing test shuttle from 1977. A small, smiley smiley face with blood pin from the Watchmen graphic novel. Oh, really? She had a Watchmen uh, patch. Wow. On the right breast is a pin with the American flag and a patch for the space shuttle Atlantis. On the left breast is a patch for the doomed Challenger shuttle, 1986, and a smaller pin in the shape of a space shuttle. On the left sleeve, there is a small badge of Spider-Man, a large patch for the American telephone, the American telephone company Bell Atlantic, and a U.S. paratrooper patch. Wow, Bell Atlantic. Thank you for using Bell Atlantic. Was that it? No, thank you for using AT&T. But yeah, Bell Atlantic used to be uh, the big telephone company. Then they merged with GTE. Remember that one? They had all these commercials. G. No. GTE. Yeah. Great. I want a Bell Atlantic patch. Let me see if I can find one. Let's go on eBay. Can I find the exact one that Ace has? Let's see. See, this, this, this is the perfect example of, like, pointless pursuits. I want a Bell Atlantic patch. That Ace has. <coughs> what would I do with it, though? Let's see. Shop Bell Atlantic patches. Okay. No, that's not it. <coughs> they have square ones, but not really. That's not really the one I'm looking for. This is the kind of thing you could probably find at some random flea market somewhere, and it would cost ten cents. But ah, uh, look. Well, there's a Bell Atlantic hat for twenty. With the patch on it. No, I want Ace's one. Listen, it's not going to happen. I, I, I can't. I can't. Ooh, Bell Atlantic Diamond State Telephone Georgetown. A phone book for $150? There's probably phone book collectors out there that, you know, these phone, these phone books that were a dime a dozen back in the day, they're worth money now because everyone just threw them out. Who wants to have a bunch of big phone books hanging around? As I was mentioning phone books earlier. Look, Bell Atlantic, Delaware, $175. Wow. Yeah, they were the whole area. They weren't just Jersey. They were New York, everything. They were, uh, they were big. Well, I mean, Verizon is still the same company, but they merged with GTE, so it made them much bigger, obviously. But I can't find it. What the hell? Bell Atlantic. Any commercials for, like, Bell Atlantic we could find here? Let's see. The Bell System. Whatever happened to the Bell System? It all got shot to hell. No, Bell Atlantic with James Earl Jones. Yes, it was him. 2000. Oh, we have to watch reels before we can watch James Earl Jones. No, I want to go back to to, to 2000. Top, 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 pay versus... Hey, talk, talk, talk. You see, all over New York, I wondered, 
What does paying for my better running long distance minutes up front buy me? You know it by your. What the hell is he talking about? Eight cents a minute in an all domestic direct dial calls all the time with no restrictions, no monthly fees, no hidden charges, no fine print. See? Call 1 888 550 6651 now. And guess what? You can buy your minutes with a credit card. So it was him. Thank you for using Bell Atlantic. The rate can't change. You always know exactly how much time you have left. You have 846 minutes for this call. And did you know you can check out your account online? Who did I call in Deadwood, South Dakota? Wow, there's someone who could be in uh, the seaweed brunch there. Definitely a seaweed brunch type. For paid or for pop. In lots of ways. Very annoying commercial. great hey it's a bit later on now i did a little more digging on russell brand and i guess he sort of takes on these issues like remember there was a russia gate thing a few years ago with donald trump and then the the vaccines and all that stuff so apparently he's been covering those those topics which um i'll always remember I went to a strange circumstance. I went to that talk radio conference. I forget when it was, a number of years ago. And actually, Rush Limbaugh was there. He showed up. And I had that little run-in with Sean Hannity. It was very bizarre that I even was there. But I sort of, a few people were talking about how they get these, they sign up for these newsletters or emails, which uh, suggest topics for them to talk about on their shows. And what I got from that, and you know, just my own um, my own uh, interpretation of it was that it's something that could seem totally innocent, like a talking points uh, memo that you get. But the implication, as I understood it, was that if you stick to these topics, you will not get in trouble. You'll be okay. These are the topics that you know the powers that be want you to talk about. And not that any of these hosts really knew what was going on, but they knew if they stuck to these topics, and it didn't really matter what side they were on with the topics, as long as they like, they they kept the churn going with these particular topics, that it was, uh, you know, approved on the high levels. So it almost seems to me that, you know, someone like Russell Brand is, you know, he's talking about Donald Trump's Russia Gate or. Are the vaccines really safe or whatever? It just seems like these would be topics that would be on that kind of like list that people get, you know, and uh, you know, you're going to get a built in audience because it seems that the media is pushing these particular narratives, right? And so they want there to be debate on this narrative, right? On both sides, they want pro and con on these particular issues, right? Are the vaccines really safe or are they poisoning you, you know? And that's the sense I get of Russell Brand is that he he's he kind of is sticking to these particular topics that are safe to talk about, even though on the surface, you know, he's apparently he was like he was recently censored by YouTube. They were like banning his some of his videos, yada, yada. But again, I, I'm sorry, I just don't buy it. I don't buy the whole being independent and this and that. Because he seems, and again, I may be wrong, and maybe he's a great guy and whatever, I don't know. But it just seems that he's sort of part of the machine that's promoting certain uh, topics to talk about. 
and then really ignoring other topics almost completely. So, you know, as he says, he's anti-corporate, anti-this, anti-that. You know, I, I wonder if why he would be talking about those very, you know, supposedly controversial topics that are the approved topics to talk about. I don't know. Maybe I'm just cynical, but I, I just don't buy it, you know. Anyway, but he can do what he wants. He's a comedian. He's, uh, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he's doing fine. He's going to go meditate. Go meditate, Russell. Go meditate. Go ahead. Anyway, today's episode is called Silicon Beachcomber. Yes. Uh, so I, this morning, I don't know why I thought of it, but there's a, when, you know, I made this CD-ROM back in uh, the 90s, around the same time as uh, the, the seaweed brunch would be. I actually got a CD-ROM manufactured called a Pelter CD-ROM with all of these uh, uh, weird background images and textures and stuff. And um, I remembered one of the images that really stuck out in my mind was called Blue Star. It was very different than the other images. It was made up of, uh, I think, a scan I made of a, of a, of a crumpled-up coffee cup. And I kind of cut that up, and then I put, I sort of drew a little red seven-pointed star in the upper left corner and it was and I but I called it Blue Star after the Blue Star shopping center where I saw Empire Strikes Back among other things and I just actually went over to the Blue Star uh, a month or two back I was at Blue Star um, so it's kind of a, a, a looms large in my childhood this Blue Star shopping center later I found out that it's, it's you know it's on this Blue Star highway and there's a bunch of Blue Star highways I saw one out in New Mexico it has to do with uh, you know like veterans and those that had been in the military and stuff, the Blue Star Highway system. I, I remember researching it. Um, but anyway, because this had a red star and I called it Blue Star, I thought it would be kind of tricky and kind of mess people up because it's a red star, not a blue star. And it almost remind, looks like a, like a weird castle made up of a crumpled up coffee cup. So I'm like, maybe I, could, I should just do a show art called Blue Star. And I'm like, eh, I don't know. The, the military angle kind of ruined it. I don't want, you know, it just sort of feels like you need to be respectful towards it, yada, yada. So I don't really want to make it into some weird psychedelic thing for my show. So I started looking at anagrams of uh, Blue Star. And uh, what's the one I came up with? Uh, laser tub. <laughs> it's like a bathtub with lasers, a laser tub. So I'm like, should I call it a laser tub? I'm like, well, no, because that, that title sucks. That's not good. Laser tub. It doesn't really make any sense. It doesn't have to make sense, but it has to be good. <coughs> so I was actually looking in my uh, my note file for show titles, and I, I saw the word beachcomber. And um, you know, apparently in, in the tiki bar craze back in the whatever mid-century of last century, uh, Don the Beachcomber was a big chain of tiki bars, I think, in the Los Angeles area. And beachcomber is just a name for someone that just sort of combs the beach, sort of walks up and down the beach looking for cool stuff they can pick up and have for themselves, a beachcomber. I just thought it was a cool word. So uh, uh, I was trying to figure out what to pair it with. And uh, somehow, because I've been looking at, um, you know, the magazine archive contribution index. Um, I've been searching by year. So looking at a lot of stuff from 93, 94, and 95. Again, that's probably why my mind is on that time period with the seaweed brunch. But um, 
they would use you know the term silicon so silicon valley obviously because silicon is the material used to make microchips silicon valley famously you know up in the bay area of, near san francisco then in new york there were silicon alley so i'm like how about silicon beachcomber that's like someone that goes on the computer networks to try to find hidden treasures which i do that just trying to find audio for the other side and stuff and i looked it up in quotes i didn't i don't think anyone else used silicon beachcomber so um <coughs> i uh i mean there, there is a silicon beach i guess it's an area in los angeles where there's a lot of tech companies but anyway silicon beachcomber i just thought that was a cool title and the font is uh, the billy beck system that guy Licini fonts uh put that together you know sort of made a web page of all these revived fonts billy beck system a very obscure font but beautiful font though and i made it so like the s connects with the b and the c connects with the h silicon beachcomber i don't know i think it looks really good and i you know in honor of blue star i did give it kind of a blue tint with a, a gray a gray border but that's the whole story behind silicon beachcomber it does seem like a very like mid-90s concept as well just like the seaweed brunch Oh, and of course, it's inspired by the recently released Discmaster website, discmaster.textfiles.com, where you can browse through uh, millions of uh, files from disks. Uh, let's see. Click here to search. What, what should we search for? Uh, how about Bell Atlantic? Any, anything about Bell, Bell Atlantic? That's not a good search. <coughs> the Bell Atlantic Corp. What is this? Oh, it's the tech. It's from the Tech Support Yellow Pages CD. Bell Atlantic Corporation, ten ninety five Avenue of the Americas, and they, they they and they even give you the phone number for the Tech Support Fax. Nice. Let's go to the website <coughs> Bell ATL dot com. Is that still up? Four oh four. Not found. Of course, it's not found. <coughs> So you can even find Bell Atlantic. Any other one? Yes, look at this. Ian and Stewart's Australian Mac, not for sale. I don't know what this is. October 13th, 1993. The subject of Bell Atlantic, TCI, and Liberty Media. It's a, it's a letter to Wired Magazine, wow. Unless you have been living, unless you have been hiding under a rock today, you can help but be aware. Isn't it you can't help? Who's proofreading these millions of files? You can help but be aware of the Bell Atlantic TCI merger announcement. Wow. It's everywhere. CNN, The Wall Street Journal, USA Today, broadcast news, local newspapers, etc. Is anyone else interested in the significance of the telco cable connection and its business implications? Wow. A lot of controversy back in 93. But what about GTE? I don't, I don't know. Is that, is that involved? I don't know. What else should we search for? I guess I can search for my old stuff, Obliviana. I doubt there's any hits, but zero results. How about Ansug? There's going to be no results. How about Pelter? Does someone throw the Pelter in there? It was hardly distributed, so. No, I'm not here. How about Frank Nora? I'm not in the archive, unfortunately. Oh, well, that's very sad. Oh, I, I, I tried this one before, Jitlov, like Mike Jitlov. 
Wait a minute. I know there's some stuff for him. So why does it say zero? Oh, you have to search for. Oh, I wasn't searching for content. Okay. Let me search for Obliviana again. Zero. Okay. Ansug. Oh, one. Whoa. What the heck? Where is what would be Ansug? Marble Blast Gold Demo. How could it? It must just be in some sort of hex code, random letters that spell Ansug. Linux game Marble Blast Gold Demo. This is getting very, very obscure here. Ragnar. Mm -hmm. Internet message forum? I, I don't know. Is this me? No, no, it's just Frank and then Nora. Why can I search in quotes? Frank Nora. Nope, no results. How about Pelter? This is pretty cool. The Disk Master. <laughs> uh, there's no onslaught in here. It's just there's like weird hex code that ONSU is in. Pelter. Well, there's some links, but it's I don't think it has anything to do with me. And how about Jitlov? Mike Jitlov, the Wizard of Speed and Time. Windows help file, news groups, monster.txt. I don't know. Ghost.txt. My life is a ghost by actor Mike Jitlov. Inside info on being a ghost in the movie of the same name. Oh, wow. He was a ghost in that with Ghost with uh, Demi Moore. Patrick Swayze. This is getting pretty weird. How about something like Pinball or something? Ooh, an image of a pinball table. Wow, what is that? An IFF interleaved bitmap image. Aminet doc fun times five. Fun time five. Holy crap, this is so obscure. But it's cool because you but because it interprets a lot of the files that are on these ISOs and stuff, right? I was looking at one that was like the magazines, um where was it? I think I saved it. It was uh, those old CD-ROM magazines, Blender, and and this was you could find like the videos that were inside of it. Like what is this? Like, hold on, no sound. Because they used to create these like three D worlds. Do any of these things have sound? I always used. Uh that that which is I David Bowie it's an interview with David Bowie out of our uh, uh, cosmos those things I always use metaphysically they were for me they always represented um, either a position of uh, alienation or isolation or um, they would represent um, aspects of uh, a spiritual search for me that they, they were spiritual metaphors I always used uh, oh it's on a loop is this here David Bowie talking about Andy Warhol about him, I remember, is that he wasn't as uh, he wasn't anywhere near as cold and as spiteful as people try to make him out. He was just like kind of a bit, f kind of bubbly, f 
just this flipped out guy that that was surprised by everything all the time and and uh, and really insecure about what what his opinion was and would always ask everybody else what their opinion was first and then see if he agreed gee what a st- what a decisive guy how about what is this nba hang time what is this Better do your stretching exercises because Midway Slam Dunk winner NBA Hang Time is coming to an N64 near you. Working on the now proven NBA Jam format. Oh, cool. Like video game reviews. How about Soul Blade? Soul Blade is Namco's third fighting masterpiece, building on their success with the classic Tekken and its sequel, Tekken oh, 2. So 90s, it, it hurts in a good way. Stunning graphics, sound effects thick with atmosphere, and music that belongs on your stereo. <laughs> it does sound like someone trying to talk like Christian Slater. Instead of in a video game. The already excellent gameplay. Think of Tekken 2, except... Good stuff. Anything else on here? What is this? I had to ask, I asked the pediatrician one question. I can remember it saying to him, how young can Judy Bloom still wow. have a wet dream? And the pediatrician said, make him Italian, he can be young. <laughs> what? The hell kind of humor is that? Is Italian humor? Judy Bloom, the author. Is this Pablo Picasso? No. I don't think there's any sound on there. There's a ton of movies. What is this? I don't know what this is. 30 seconds? SWSZ. Oh, I know what I can do. I can use uh, Shazam to try to tell what song this is. So you can, we can use technology versus technology. Hold on. Let me restart it. Here we go. Technology, come on. No. Sophie Zelmani, yeah. Sophie Zelmani, always. I never heard of Sophie Zelmani. She was probably the next big thing back in 1990X and whatever happened to her, I don't know. How about the box.mov? Let's try this one. Oh, there's no sound. Oh, wait. Oh. You dream of a music... All right, here we go. You dream of a music video channel that's all music video all the time. Yeah. You dream of a music video channel that's interactive. You see what you want, when you want. You dream of music television you control. Well, wake your ass up. It's a reality check. You're dreaming about The Box, music television you control. And it's here now. now. The Box is the planet's only interactive all-music video channel and is yours for the taking. From hip-hop to rock, from Latin to pop, from alternative to dance, The Box. It's interactive and it's easy to use. Watch the music menu scroll. Pick a video along with its three-digit code. Call the Box 900 number and enter your video selection. That's it. If you call, it will play. Check your TV guide and turn to the box. The music box. television you control. If you don't get the box, then call your local cable company and tell them to get off their ass. Tell them you want the box. Music television you control. The box. It's for all the... What was that one song they were referencing there? Uh, I got to go back. But yeah, I remember the box. I remember I was living in uh, Island, New Jersey, and I, I, you called in. They, they failed to mention... 
that the 800 number charges you like a couple bucks to play the song. And I remember this was just when Beck's uh, Loser came out. And uh, so I, I tried to put that in. It took like hours for the video to come on that I spent like $4 on or whatever. But what's that, what's that one song that they were referencing? Oh, maybe it, was, maybe it was Beck, The New Pollution, maybe? Hold on, let's see if I can find that window. Uh, where was it? I thought I, I, th- I thought I thought I just had it. Oh, here it is. Okay. Right. There's the a- interactive all music video channel, and is yours for the taking. From hip hop to rock, from Latin to pop, from alternative to dance, the box. It's interactive and it's easy to use. Watch the music menu scroll. Pick a video along with its three-digit code. Call the box 900 number and enter your video selection. That's it. If you call, it will play. Check your TV guide and turn to the box. Music television you control. If you don't get the box, then call your local... Right, Beck, Beck. Um, Something's wrong because my mind is hurting. Everywhere I go, there's a dead end waiting. Temperatures rising at the rotten oasis. Stealing kisses from the lepers' faces, right? Devil's Haircut. Yeah, it was Devil's Haircut. Okay. Let's see if we can find that song. He was good for those first few albums, you know? He was good. This is a hell of a song, right? As owner of Mint Mobile, I wanted to... Ah, shut up, Ryan Reynolds. What do you have to say? Get out of here. Humorous commercials. Yeah. Exactly. That's an exact match. Beck. What's up with that guy? Yeah, looking back on the 1990s, you know. It's funny because um, back then, like the whole... Gen X, you know, so the you know people in their twenties back then that who were in Generation X, everyone was all cynical, man, about the about what's going on. Everything sucks, you know. <laughs> N- never mind. A couple of years later, what thirty years later now? Is it thirty years later? It is kind of thirty years later. Twenty to thirty years later. Look at the world we're living in now. We're looking back at the nineties, like, oh my god, that was a paradise. What we were saying it sucks. What do we think about this time period? <laughs> <coughs> anyway, yeah, anyway, so uh, in other news, I was uh, went over to the Clifton Commons at a liquor store to get some beer, and um, in New Jersey, of course, you could, they cannot sell beer in a convenience store or a supermarket. They have to sell beer at liquor stores. Just this patchwork of bizarre laws that came about after the end of Prohibition in this country. New Jersey has a rather restrictive law about beer. Plus, we still can't pump our own gas. That's that's two of the two liquid based two two important liquids in our life: gasoline and beer. The laws have uh, these strange rules. Well, then again, you know we're 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 waited on by the the gas servants, the gas pumpers. But it's always aggravating because it's like, hey, can you fill it up with regular? I'm thinking like, sorry, you have to pump gas, but I guess that's your job. But I would do it, but it's illegal here in Jersey. Sorry, bud. Anyway, I went over there. It was raining. It was sort of late dusk. And uh, I looked over in the parking lot, and there's the Metal Hall of Fame over there. 
Yeah, it's a uh, it's a it's a large vehicle. Like a it looks it's weird. It's like a giant bus or a vehicle called the Metal Hall of Fame. A big logo on it. I have no idea what it is. I took a picture of it. There it is. Beautiful picture. Metal Hall of Fame. And I have not looked it up. I have no idea. What is the Metal Hall of Fame? Let's look. I, 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 you'll find out the same time I do. Metal Hall of Fame. Is it like a roving uh, museum about heavy metal? Uh, yeah. Oh, wait. It's a TV show? Hmm. <laughs> wait a minute. Metal Hall of Fame. I mean, maybe it's not heavy metal. Maybe it's just actual metals like iron and tin and antimony. Is that a metal antimony? An- antimony? Uh, I don't know. The Metal Hall of Fame. Okay. Um, it's on Apple TV. What? Our mission. The Metal Hall of Fame is a nonprofit organization dedicated to enshrining forever those iconic musicians and industry executives who are responsible for making rock and metal music what it is today. But like, what is it? Is it is a TV show? Visit metalhalloffame.org. I'm on that website. Wait a second. Media coverage. But what about the truck that I saw? Is it they were covered they were covered in Radar Online, Shazam, I just used Shazam, Inquisitor, The Times of Israel, 1055 WDHA, The Rock of New Jersey, NPR, VH1, ABC News, CBS, and ABC News again. They were on ABC News twice, NBC, CBS, MTV, American OG. I guess that's an Italian thing. More Italian stuff. USA Today, Brave Words, Blabbermouth.net, and Fox News. All right, but what is it? Can I watch? Is it a TV show? All right, let's go to their YouTube channel. This might help. Okay, let me see. I mean, there's not like there's any... Um, there's no requirements to have a Hall of Fame. You just say it's a Hall of Fame, and then it's a Hall of Fame, right? It's like an artificial thing. All right, what is this? The 2021... Oh, here's the Metal Hall of Fame 2021 trailer. Okay, this might help. This might help us. Try to understand what this is all about. SGL Entertainment. Welcome, fans, to the annual 2021 Metal Hall of Fame Gala. The most important night in hard rock and heavy metal. Tonight's 2021 (coughs) Metal Hall of Fame inductees include Eric Carr, Doc McGee, Bruce Kulick, Bill LaCoyne, Marty Friedman, Striper, Triumph, Mark Weiss. Triumph. That, that, that was the band my roommate used to always listen to in college. Uh, that guy, John Rasta. Blaze Bailey. This is really bringing me down. What is any more? I don't, I don't need the list. Are any of these people actually going there? Or are they just in, inducting them? They just want to meet these people. That's the bottom line. They decided to create their own like Metal Hall of Fame so that they could meet their heroes. Welcome, music fans, to the 2021 Annual Metal Hall of Fame Awards and our five-year anniversary Kathy Rankin? Who the heck is she? This is the most important night in hard rock and heavy metal. So what is it, though? Is it just... Oh, oh, the whole thing is on here. Okay. It's really annoying. Let me fast forward. Let's see. I'm done. I'm done. I, I, I don't know. I'm tired of this whole topic. I thought it was a cool thing, and it's bringing me down. It's totally bringing me down. It shouldn't be that hard. It's like pulling teeth, trying to get information on this damn, this damn uh, hall of, 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 of supposedly a fame. All right. 
listen, at this point, I, I, I think it's time for, for tofu. I think it's time for the fried tofu. I need tofu at this point. You know, my famous fried tofu. So I just put olive oil in a pan. Then I dump a bunch of spices in there. Heat it up. Then I slice up some tofu, throw it on there. Then I put hot sauce and soy sauce on top of the tofu. Then I turn it over four minutes and then another four or three minutes. And then it's done. It's the best meal ever. For me, that is. All right. It is tofu time. I got my tofu here. See, I use a Hodo Organic Extra Firm. And I slice it. You know, so it's sort of like these uh, rectangles, like a one by three inches around. Maybe about a half inch thick. I don't know. It's good, though. Let me have some. Hey. Back outside. That was a great... Great tofu. It was great tofu time. Love it. What a great meal. Anyway, another TV news. Uh, HBO's, or is it now HBO Max, whatever. Uh, House of the Dragon, the Game of Thrones prequel, finished up its first season. I think there were about 10 episodes. And, you know, I started off very skeptical. I had been really just burnt out on the whole Game of Thrones thing and um, has had no enthusiasm or no care for it, but I watched it. And the first couple episodes were a little shaky, but it got so good. It got so much better. It's absolutely fantastic. Really a slam dunk, a real fantastic show. Top-notch television. I'm so impressed and so surprised that uh, House of the Dragon was so good. Highly recommended. Um, Really, I, 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 these days of such a dismal television, I, I'm so impressed. Um, this is sort of like a couple hundred years before the Game of Thrones that we that we know that action took place. The House of Tar- Targaryens, and uh, um, really, I mean, this guy, uh, Pat, his name is Patty something. The guy who played Viserys, the king, um, a really interesting character because he was a king that was kind of. Um, he was not a bad guy. He was kind of a good guy, but he was kind of weak in some ways. And the guy that played him was so good. And he's such a great character. I mean, it was absolutely fantastic. Just the casting, the writing, everything about the show was so good. But mainly the writing, you know. I mean, I think you can find, like, you can find good actors, good costume designers, but the writing is what is always a big mess. And I think, you know, I think this is based on a a, um, a book that was written by George R. R. Martin, as a history of the Targaryens. Anyway, I have to give credit to them. They really did a great job on it. And uh, I think in some ways it was, you know, I know it's hard to, like, I haven't seen Game of Thrones in a long time, but it just felt like a more focused story and just all around better television than even, uh, I mean, I did like Game of Thrones when it was on, but it was so good. Check it out. And I did watch um, the latest, uh, I guess Russell Brand, even though he w- they said he was kicked off of YouTube, he, he just got like a strike against him because he gave some mis- misinformation. But I guess he's, uh, he's moved to rumble in case YouTube yanks his whole channel. Um, but he did an episode about uh, Rishi Sunak. And, um, I, th- I really feel like it's, he's a very 
you know, entertaining personality. But I do think that the dialectics that he promotes, um, even though while he claims to be against all that stuff, um, he's still in that narrow band of, of discourse uh, that seems to be mainstream. And, uh, I mean, I don't want to discount someone if they're for real, but I don't know. I have a hard time believing it. Um, there was some quote from someone about how, um, you know, as long, like, as long as you keep people, I will just, you know, as long as you keep people asking the wrong questions, it doesn't matter what the answers are. As, as, and as long as you promote a vigorous, Debate within a narrow band of, of issues, um, it protects the powers that be. I forget exactly who said it's something like that, but it's very true, and it's you know you sort of see it happening. Um, in a way, almost having a comedian spin these things in a fun way is even almost more sinister, you know, because you know someone that seems that they're promoting. Uh, a point of view that would be of benefit to the average person uh, if they're really, and perhaps he doesn't even know he's doing it, serving the interests of those in control, you know, it's it's sort of, it is sort of almost more sinister in a way. But I suppose if he's entertaining and people are entertained by him, it's fine, you know, just I don't think the average person is going to really at this point is at a huge disadvantage and can't really do much, but that's what they want you to think. Ugh, very tiresome. All this political, all this political, political stuff, the political junk. I sometimes wonder how I managed to avoid falling into being some sort of political comedian podcaster person or whatever because I was really uh, you know into politics mainstream politics in the early to mid 90s but I, I I was very disenchanted with it by the later 90s and just gave up on it and just don't believe in I don't believe in one party or the other but that's what the show is about this is the overnight escape damn it I want to say thank you so much for patching in to this episode of The Overnightscape. My voice is almost back to normal, but I still, I still have that lingering cold. I am your host, Frank Edward Nora, here in the Onsug, a radio station inside a book. Go to onsug.com for all your Onsug requirements. All the latest shows and the massive archive. We have over 13,000 hours of material you can listen to. And yes, I am working on the, the actual radio station inside a book which does exist. You can just listen to the shows you want, but I want to have some kind of a hosting level where uh, there's some sort of guidance in terms of uh, listening to the whole archive. That's on my, that, that's on my to-do list. It's on the agenda. Okay. There has to be some kind of system of, uh, you know, like, a, 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 it's sort of going to be like a station that plays content from the Onsug. I'm working on it. It's not easy. It's, it's obviously it's not easy, but I'm working on it. Anyway, just go to onsug.com. 
on that sidebar there, you'll see uh, a link to the Ansug Radio Archive. That's the current archive of all over 13,000 hours on the Internet Archive. Click on that. You can be listening to anything. And what, what, what should you listen to? I mean, you can chart your own course, which I know it's, you know, people aren't going to be motivated to do that. So just listen to the latest shows that come out on Ansug.com. But if you want to explore, you can go get the book. Right, the book is uh, called the Onsugger Radio Station Inside a Book. It's an actual book you can buy. It's priced as cheap as I could make it. I'm not making any money on the book. It's print on demand. I get zero dollars from every book sold. You can also download the book as a free PDF, and I do update it every month as well. One thing you can do is download that PDF. Um, the updated PDF. The PDFs also contain thousands of pages. All the show notes are in one PDF. Download that PDF file, open it up in your favorite PDF program, and you can search for phrases, just like I was searching for stuff on that, uh, what's that thing called, Data data Master, Disk Master? You could search that PDF for any phrase or any anything and find some hits and show note descriptions, though I still have a bunch of episodes that have no sh- show notes because I was very lazy about it for a while, and I, I, and I didn't write the show notes. Now I do it as I'm doing the show. I almost don't even think about it. It's like automatic for me now. I just write show notes while I'm doing the show. But there was a time where I would record a show, then re-listen to it to write the notes. That's a recipe for disaster. And so there's a lot of shows that don't have notes. They will be noted up eventually, either by by hand or by AI or whatever. You know. Anyway, even now, you most of my shows have notes. You you can search for topics. If you want to hear my reviews of movies, TV shows, anything, you can search for that. You'll you'll find references to it. Uh, any topic under the sun that we've talked about on the Onsug, me and so many dozens of other other uh, dozens of other hosts here on on the Onsug. The Onsug is a T H E space O N S U G, the Overnightscape Underground, right? Um, really is a lifetime of listening pleasure. This is a non-commercial project. There's no money changing hands. You know, we're not asking for contributions. We don't have sponsors. This and that. Ugh, what's going on with this cigar? It's getting ruined. The label pulled off some of the wrapper. Um, you know, that wasn't the original plan. The original plan was maybe kind of sort of to try to make money with the whole thing. But I don't think that was in the cards. So It's unique in that it's it's uh, non-commercial. We have a very unique style. And we're very focused on people listening in the near and far future. That's what makes the Onsug our huge archive. Makes the Onsug very unique. You know, I think I would say, uh, to give a little insight into that, I did want to make money with it at some point. And... Um, I do think that if I was to uh, somehow change everything to try to make money, I could probably make a little bit of money. I don't know. But um, the fact that I'm able to do the show, I do the show twice a week. I do Central. We do Exit Ramp. I am just so pleased with the content that I'm producing. I don't want to mess with the formula. I don't want to change anything. As a creative person, I see so many of my fellow people of my age that have been so stymied and so blocked creatively and not be able to produce anything of anything really uh, that the fact that I'm able to produce something is really almost on the level of a miracle <laughs> and I do acknowledge I don't even know how I got to this point it does seem like there's a higher power helping me whatever it is I think it's people in the future with quantum technology I know some of you are out there saying, Frank, it's God. God is doing it. Okay, I understand that. But God means a million different things to a million different people. What is God, you know? But anyway, I do acknowledge there's, it doesn't seem, I am so sort of scatterbrained in some ways and so flighty and going from topic to topic. The fact that I'm actually 
have some sort of set project that I'm doing is I realize that it's not something to take lightly and just I'm going with it. I mean, that's the whole idea. So making money is, is a lesser concern than producing good work, which I think I am. I hope you do too, hopefully. Um, anyway, check it out. You could be part of the archive. There's a show each week called Overnight Escape Central, as I mentioned, that very fun episode about characters. Hopefully that's coming out today or tomorrow. And you can participate too. Just listen to the latest episode. You can send your audio into Mr. PQ Ribber in Truth or Consequences, New Mexico, a place I did visit earlier this year. Amazing place. I do want to get back there. And uh, you can check it out. The, the current episode is Dogs. Check that one out. A lot of people having a lot of great insights on dogs. And, uh, yeah, characters. I love that topic. And who knows what ne- next week's topic is. You can participate in next week's show. Listen to the episode, get the vibe, and then send your audio into Mr. PQ River. He'll give his email address. His email address is kpqr.torc at gmail.com. Right? That's like, it's like a radio station. K-P-Q-R, PQ River period, T-O-R-C, truth or consequences, T-R-C, right? Makes sense. They call the the town T-R-C. What's that airplane going by overhead? Where are they going? They may be headed to a magical land, like you are. Headed into the portal, the doorway, it is a veritable, veritable jamboree of audio delights. And it has arrived. Here it is. The Other Side.
I love it. What is it? It's not a what is it. It's a happy hugger. A what? A happy hugger. It hugs you, it talks to you, hello, and it kisses you and tickles you. Let me try it. Wait, it needs elbows. Here's a hug from the happy hugger. The Happy Hugger, hand-washable, drip-dry from Dick Clark Associates. Order yours in Chicago by calling 641-1111 or toll-free 800-621-0660. Save COD, send 1998 to Box 4999, Chicago.
Christian Slater of Tucker and Heather's stars with Stephen Bauer from FIFA Parts and Richard Hurd of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in Gleaming the Cube. Brian Kelly didn't care for the way adults ran things. Adults are predictable. They're living under this illusion that life as we know it is going to continue forever. And he didn't care for the direction the world was heading. I don't know what's worse, you know? Being blown up in a nuclear war having a 7-Eleven on every corner. In fact, there were only two things that Brian did care for. His skateboard and his brother. Trump. What? Got a B plus in countenance. Then one day his brother died. Was an accident. And Brian's skateboard became his weapon in a deadly game of international smuggling, murder, and revenge. No one knows anything except a kid on a skateboard. Killed my brother. You're not listening. You're, you're the one who's not listening. When getting even means risking it all. Gleaming the cube. Some foreign 
policy is policy foreign to me. Two nations start to war to set another strange land free. Some foreign policies foreign to me. Some foreign policies foreign to me. Some foreign policies for. Some foreign policies for. Some foreign policies for. Some foreign policies foreign to me. I'm in the magazine of us. There's no one in this world to trust. And as I'm doing what I must, I just can't tell that really ain't no good at all. I try to leave this devil sweet. I don't want to become a heel, but if you want to make me feel like this, I just can't tell that ain't no good for me. Got your proposal. When you have a phone that remembers 20 numbers and redials with one touch and answers calls for you and a whole lot more, you can get plenty of office work done at home or run your business from wherever you choose to live. Great. Okay, we got a deal. Bye-bye. G. No. GTE.
at that. Um, I, I made a comment last hour, and I, I regret it. I said, Colin Hay, he might be late. You know how these rock stars are? He's um, early. Some rock stars are late, but not if they're Scottish, you see, because Scottish people are never late. They may, be, they may be thrifty, but they're never late. I see. Otherwise, if they're late, they don't get the job. Yes, this is philosophy that we were discussing uh, during the video. We won't even tell America <laughs> about the rest of it. You've been away for a while, Colin. Yes. And there's been... Uh, you, mean, uh, you mean the last year or just, just, in the, just in the immediate past? No, I mean in the, in the last year or so you've been away. Yeah. There's been big changes with men at work. Yeah, well, we had... Um, we had... Um, after we finished touring in 83, it was uh, kind of uh, tense. And we were all, uh, this incredible fatigue factor had um, set in. And um, we all ran away for a while. And for all intents and purposes, I don't really think that... Uh, men at work really existed for quite a, for a little while and then we just drifted back together again. It was obvious that there was changes to be made and the changes got made and Greg and Ron and I started... Yeah, you're, you're, you're sort of glazing over like... Well, yeah, I mean, I can talk, I could, I could, I could, uh, you know, talk about that. A couple that, of guys you know, but it's ultimately, it, you know, it's ultimately fairly, bo fairly boring, you know, I mean, uh, the truth of the matter is, you know, that um, philosophical, personal, musical reasons, you know, it's like a marriage. You've been married to five people at once, you know. It's bound to be a couple of divorces along the way, you know. No, I, I was. And we parted company. Uh, okay, I'm going to keep going. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. And we, we parted. We, so um, we parted company last last year, and uh, the three of us, Greg and Ron and and, and myself, wanted to keep going and <coughs> keep making men at work records. And so that's what we did, and we made two hearts. And uh, then we had the prospect of touring and doing, you know, mo getting mobilised again. And uh, I don't think Ron was very keen on that, so he bailed out and went to Greece. So it's just me and Greg Ham left for all intents and purposes, and we have a, a touring band, which is uh, which I'm very excited about. Boy, you know, he really he just plowed through all of that. We didn't get any details. We just know that a couple of guys have okay, left the band. We can go back. Wait, I, I, why don't we do that? I think we're going to break away. We're going to do some video from Phil Collins. We have Phil coming up within the next ten minutes or so, but we have quite a bit more coming with Colin Hay, and he's going to tell us why, besides musical differences, these guys left the band, right? No. Okay. <laughs> Hey, from Men at Work, who uh, thought he escaped the question about oh. what happened with the band in the oh. last segment. Uh, no escape? No escape, I'm afraid not. <clears throat> what do you want to know? Why? Well, uh, well, what, what we're dealing with is just five men, you know, working together for five years. And uh, it, it just, things, things build up over a period of time. And, and, and when you have a common goal, you just, and you, you go, you go for, you go to, for whatever level of success you can get to, and once you achieve that, you, you, it's not a case of oh, who do I, who do I have to work with, us, who do I want to work with, and uh, it's uh, it's very it's very emotional to talk about you know dealing with five men over over that period of time. So I just want to, rather than go back to there, I just want to I want to keep moving ahead because there were differences, you know, all sorts of differences, uh, philosoph philosophical differences, the old cliche of musical differences and personal differences, and you just work out who you want to work with and go ahead and, and, uh, and keep going and uh, try and make, try and uh, keep making good music. Um, and also, as far as, it doesn't really help the situation here in America because people just think, oh, they're gone, you know, where have they been, you know, we couldn't really do anything until we, <coughs> excuse me, until we got all the, you know, the legalities done and, and out of the way so that we could keep going. But we wanted to go keep going as men at work all the time and, uh, and we did, but it just so we have to actually sort of re-establish ourselves. And uh, I think, um, oh, that's what I'm trying to do now, you know. Yeah. And that's why you're I'm back. <laughs> I ain't going nowhere no more. <laughs> there was uh, some stuff going down while you were recording this record in terms of a producer. You sort of, you were... 
We didn't have a producer. Yes. No. What happened? Well, we 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 were a bit, we left everything till the eleventh hour, which is kind of normal within our band, and we looked we looked around for uh, for producers, and there was no one really available who who uh, we felt um, who we felt could could uh, produce our third record the way we the, the way the way we thought it should be done. Um, and so, what happened? Well, Greg and I, Greg and I sort of found ourselves with the reins, you know, and it was, but it was very fortunate. It was um, fatalistic in a way because we discovered that we could work really well together as producers. If, he, if I was singing, he would produce me and, if, and, um, and vice versa, you know, and we were very critical of each other, you know, and uh, we feel we got really good performances out of each other. And the people we used, excuse me, to do the, um, to, uh, we used a lot of technology and we used a lot of people who we respected in Australia to do it. Mm -hmm. It was a very, very exciting record to make. It wasn't... Uh, wasn't pressured, it wasn't, it was a very uh, relaxed affair. Alright. We got more coming. Of course, we've been seeing the new videos uh, <coughs> from Man at Work, video from Man at Work, and there is quite a bit more coming. Pink uh, and Black from Robert Plant. What do you want to talk about now? I don't know. I figured, uh, I heard you just got back from Puerto Rico. How well, was it? The women, uh, Puerto Rico was extremely good. Yes, the people are very friendly. Too friendly. It's party time. Everyone in the streets from 12 midnight till 6 a.m. It doesn't stop. Come on, see, when the videos are on. <laughs> He's telling me about the women in Puerto Rico, but now, nothing. I talked about the women. That's what I, that's what I meant when I said people. <laughs> More with Colin Hay from Men at Work after <coughs> this short word. Don't go anywhere. <laughs> Colin Hay from Men at Work. Been away for a long time. Uh, got a new record right just out called Two Hearts. We'll give America a look at that, I think, can't we? Two Hearts, new record? No, that's the two of us. <laughs> and now, here's the record cover. We, uh did a news story a little while ago that the band was going to be going to China. Mm. Tell us about it. Well, we, um, we wrote a letter to the Prime Minister of Australia, and uh, he's pretty pally with the, uh, with the Chinese at the moment, you know. Hey. And, uh, Trade and such. Yeah, yeah, all that sort of thing. And we made a request which he liked, and uh, he made a political request to the Chinese, and the Chinese approved, um, approved the tour within two and a half weeks, which was really fast because it, uh, I think when Wham went there it took about 18 or 19 months to get official approval. We also so it's very that, quick. that there was, uh, that you were going to be going to more cities than Wham. How, how many cities are you going to? Which city? Well, we're only doing three. We're doing uh, Shanghai, Beijing and Nanking, I think, over a period of about 10 days or 12 days. So it'll be good. It won't be like touring here where you go boom, 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 70 cities in 90 days. It'll be, we'll have a chance to get out, of, get, get out and about. We're going to film and document it. Well, we're going to China, we're doing Australia, we're doing Japan, we're doing like two months or so and then taking a break and then hopefully come back here. <laughs> yeah. America misses you. Now, well, I miss American. It's good walking around the streets because New York has always been very good, very good to us. And yeah. uh, it's, a nice, it's nice to walk around and feel people's uh, positive, positivity still. You know? now, you, because you're going to China, you're postponing an American tour. Now that is chancy stuff, isn't it? Well, it, well, not really, because um, you know the, the tour of America. The tour of America. We wanted to come in. We wanted to come in and do America properly, and we we, we were structuring this tour, and we we felt kind of funny about the fact that we weren't sure whether we we were going to be quite ready, because this band mm. is very new. So we did like a, a tour of Australia, and then we did two shows in Puerto Rico, and then we're going to go back and work out what we feel would be a much uh, more interesting and better production and because it has been a year we don't want to go in kind of oh, how do you do this we want to go in where everything is killer and we want to we want to uh, establish what we've always believed that men at work is a very strong live act as right. well as uh, anything else we're gonna we're gonna break away here and go back to video but when is it that you're gonna be 
in the state's life? Well, um, all going according to plan um, in the spring, say March right through summer, is what I want to do, and I want right. to do it. I want to do very much. I miss coming here. All right. Colin Hay. Thanks very much. Good to have you. We got Bananarama video right now. This is cruel. <laughs> A big new suspense thriller, Twilight's Last Gleaming. I have no intentions of honoring their commitments. That's no reason to blow up the whole world. Yo, fuck, huh? He doesn't have the keys, huh? He can't launch, huh? Robert, the dirty dozen Aldrich, presses the button and blasts the screen apart with a sensational new suspense film, Twilight's Last Gleaming. Certificate double A. The Odeon Lester Square from Thursday.
On October 14, 1993, Luxor, a new hotel casino in Las Vegas, opened its doors. Luxor is probably the most spectacular architectural statement in the world today. It's a destination, really. It's the latest and most high-tech evolution of a combination between entertainment and gaming like a, a planet. It's really phenomenal. I mean, it was amazing when we walked up. We just um, couldn't believe what we saw. This is an opportunity of a lifetime to work on the Luxor project because I think it's a real entertainment breakthrough. The story of Luxor begins with Circus Circus Enterprises, the company that runs the Circus Circus Casino, built in 1968 on the Las Vegas Strip. Unlike casinos featuring high-stakes gambling and star-studded entertainment, the idea includes circus acts and a midway where parents can bring their kids. Circus Circus was acquired in 1974 by William G. Bennett, its current chief executive officer. Over the years, Mr. Bennett developed many other properties, including Excalibur, a King Arthur-themed castle with over 4,000 rooms. In 1991, the company announced the building of Luxor on a 47-acre site adjacent to Excalibur. Over here, we have a, a lot of space. Luxor began by bringing together the leading talents in hotel, casino, management and design, architecture, and high-tech special effects attractions. It starts with a vision, but the vision is somewhat vague. And what happens is that you then seek out the best and the brightest of all you can find. And you have intense brainstorm sessions. And out of that comes ideas. Everybody has future pictures, Doug. Bill Paulos is Luxor's general manager, responsible for overseeing every aspect of the project. How can we depict the good future that, of your story to where it's, it's friendly and warm and, and, and where people leave on a high? When you get that big payoff scene at the end... Douglas Trumbull, world-renowned for the Back to the Future ride and the special effects for Close Encounters of the Third Kind, created the high-tech attractions. This is the first time that anybody's ever said to me, you could design the whole thing. And not only the concept of the shows and the production of the shows, but the design of the theaters themselves. This is the big concrete pad that's on the special piers for the motion page, right? Veldon Simpson is the architect. His idea to build a pyramid grew from a five-story hotel to a 30-story gaming and entertainment complex. I think we've reached the point where architecture now becomes a very important element and casino hotel work, and that's what makes these projects so exciting. Ground is broken in April 1992, and Luxor begins to rise in the Las Vegas desert. Over 
150 contractors and 3,500 workers are employed to build the grand scale structure. I think I have the same feeling about uh, this project that everybody on this job has. From me to the contractors, all the way down to the painters and the drywallers and everybody out there are just delighted to be working on this job. What this, am I hanging? Is this fire alarm? It's a door, it's a door speaker that's going to make a creaking sound when the door opens. I'm a wireman. The most interesting thing outside of the cranes, outside, they were awful high, uh, will probably be these theaters. When we have the stage built and push the pyramid up to it, we'll frame out this hole. Unique, different, complex. You ain't never going to build a pyramid again. The idea of a pyramid inspired Douglas Trumbull and his production designer, Bob Taylor, to create all the thematic elements for the Luxor attractions, from the architecture and decor of the theaters to the story that is the basis for the attraction films. We wanted to create some place for you to go, some place to have an adventure, some place that we've never seen before. And in designing the architectural motif and configuration of this pre-Egyptian civilization, our idea was that everything you've ever seen in Egypt is a poor facsimile of what this high-technology civilization developed. And that they lived in a world where gravity was no longer an issue. And they built vehicles that could levitate. So we've been able to give this world a very uh, spectacular and unusual look. In the spring of 1993, the attraction level begins to take shape and the pyramid reaches a height of 200 feet. The building will boast the largest atrium in the world, with elevators that run diagonally up the four corners. Three theaters are constructed to house the main attractions, a trilogy of adventures through the past, present, and future. The entrance to the attraction level is modeled to look like a vast archaeological dig. This will be a large ramp that goes down into the casino. And over on this side is a large pond of water. And then there's a big hanging bridge that goes across here. And that's one of the scenes that goes into your past theater. And this whole thing will be covered with fog. We'll have fog just falling off of these rocks and down into this pond of water. At the Trumbull Company in Lenox, Massachusetts, production on the attractions is in progress, including developing the prototype for the motion base that will carry the audience through an adventure called In Search of the Obelisk. Basically, it's a 15-passenger uh, vehicle. The screen is 25 feet across, somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 feet high. You project the image throughout the whole 180 degrees of the uh, screen. This is like a 5,000-pound steel structure under here with a tremendous hydraulics. This thing really has a tremendous amount of power. I mean, it's really going to whip people around, you know. It's, it's amazing how strong it is. The computer-controlled theater is programmed to move synchronously with the action and characters in the film. By bringing all those things together, you feel like you're inside the movie. You're not just looking at the movie, you're in the movie, and you're one of the characters in the movie. 